Church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie, one of the pastor, elders, Cross Point Church. Excited to have you guys here this morning. Um, if you're new, just to kind of catch you up to speed, you've come in at a great time. Last week, uh, we, we began a sermon series entitled Cross Point Together, a, a vision casting series where we're looking at not only the mission and vision of our church, but also the values that, that we long to see infused in the people who make up this expression of Jesus's bride. And I said last week that I'm convinced that this series could have a ripple effect, not only in our church, but in, in our communities for years to come. And so last week I began this series with a, a declarative statement uh, that's incredibly simple and yet incredibly profound. And, and the statement is this, everyone everywhere is being discipled. Say that again, everyone everywhere is being discipled. The, the question isn't, are you a disciple, but rather, who or what are you a disciple of? Put another way, everyone is a follower of a particular vision of the good life. We all live in a particular place at a particular time in human history, and this place and time are not neutral. There are competing visions of what Jesus says is the good life and what the surrounding culture says is the good life, and we have a choice to make. We can, we can breathe the air that Jesus offers us and experience abundant life, or we can breathe the air that the world offers us and completely miss it. Last week I shared this quote from Joe Rigney, professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He says this, he says, We are always becoming who we will be. We are all of us in storied creatures living our lives in a narrative, which means our lives have directions, trends, and trajectories. Right this minute we are headed somewhere, and sooner or later we are bound to end up there. Everyone everywhere is being discipled. Each and every one of us are disciples of a particular vision of the good life. The question that begs to be answered is this, would Jesus agree with your definition of the good life? Would Jesus agree with my definition of the good life? Because as followers of Jesus, if that's you, it's incumbent upon us to take our cues from Jesus himself, to look to Jesus and how he describes the good life instead of taking our cues from the surrounding culture. The, the tension between these competing visions of the good life is what I referred to last week as the contested space. It's in the contested space that we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's in the contested space that we're called to point people to Jesus. It's in the contested space that we're called to make disciples of Jesus. It starts with our hearts and moves outward into our lives, our families, our homes, our streets, our communities, our, our workplaces, our schools, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. It's, it's what most of us in this room have signed up for, the Christian life. But, but here's the deal. I, I mentioned this last week. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that few people are actually experiencing this thing called the abundant life that Jesus offers. And, and I think there are a number of reasons why that's true, but there are two big reasons that I mentioned last week that I want to continue to come after in the coming weeks as we move forward through this series. That there are two alternative voices beckoning us with the same words that Jesus spoke to the disciples. Follow me. The voice of moralism and the voice of suburbanism. The voice of moralism calls us to a life of performance in the name of earning God's love and favor. It's a nasty, vicious monster that's been lurking around the Bible Belt for years. Uh, if you know anything about this monster, you know that the, that the way he calls us, the way he beckons us is with the words, there, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And God hates the bad guys and he loves the good guys. So be a good guy and God will love you. That's the monster of moralism. 
He loves to watch you dance between the two extremes of pride and despair. Pride when you think you're living up to God's expectations and despair when you fall short. We'll talk about that monster a little bit more in a few minutes. But there's also this cultural giant of suburbanism. I won't call suburbanism a monster because unlike moralism, the suburbs can be redeemed. You can't redeem moralism. There is no gospel-centered moralism. But, but I will call suburbanism perhaps the greatest cultural giant standing in the way of the gospel in our particular context. I shared this quote as well last week from Jared Wilson. He says this in his book, The Imperfect Disciple. He says, I think the spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. The spirit of the suburbs in a nutshell is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Self is at the center and all things serve the self. The primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. Or as my friend Ross Lester said at a church planting conference I went to about a month ago. Again, many of you saw these quotes last week, but if you didn't, he says this. He says, you have to fight hard for genuine community in places that revolve around the cult of the standalone nuclear family unit. You have to preach and believe the scandalous gospel of grace in environments designed around performance and self-help. You have to remind people of God's great mission and their place in it in the midst of routines, school runs, commutes, and survival. We, we live in perhaps the most contested space the world has ever known. This perfect cultural cocktail of moralism and suburbanism. These voices calling out to us, inviting us to live lives of, of suppression, distraction, isolation, and consumption. Jesus offers us something far better. Jesus invites us to live lives of celebration, connection, community, and contribution. We're going to talk about those those four rhythms over the course of the next four weeks. And, and I want to I attempt to, to show you what the fight to live out these rhythms for God's glory and our joy really looks like. And so we're going to start with the rhythm of celebration this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible, open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, you have a translation, maybe it's difficult to understand. That Bible's yours. Please take it. Church's gift to you. Let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump in, and we'll get going. God, we are about to look at a chapter of the Bible in which we see the third person of the Godhead moving, stirring, working, overcoming barriers in order that the mighty works of God might be put on full display. God, I'm not asking for another Pentecost this morning, but I'm most certainly asking third person of the Godhead, Holy Spirit of God, for you to move and stir in the hearts of people who inhabit this space this morning. I pray that you would awaken us out of whatever slumber we might find ourselves in this morning, that you would draw us out of that slumber into a rowdiness that the Christian life is meant to be. God, that we would walk out of this building embracing more and more of a rhythm of celebration in our lives because of the story that we get to be a part of by your grace and for your glory. So would you do that? All I can do is open up the scriptures, and preach, proclaim, seek to be faithful. Spirit of God, you're the one who calls Lazarus out of the tomb. So would you do that this morning in each of our hearts? 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So here's the deal. If, you, if you've been around here long enough, you know that our typical approach to unpacking the scriptures is to mine every single verse for all it's worth, to look for as much buried treasure as we possibly can. That's not what we're going to do today particularly because it's not within the scope of what we're going after in this series. The goal of this series is to make plain in the scriptures some principles, some some values that the biblically faithful, Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered church should be about. And then to show how those principles, those values can be lived out in a strategic way in our context, in the midst of this thing I'm calling the contested space. And what that means is that as we open Acts chapter 2 this morning, the day of Pentecost, I'm not going to spend time unpacking the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to spend time dealing with the question of whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are alive and well today. If you want to go through and work through some of that stuff, I'd encourage you to go to our website and go find a series entitled A Beautiful Mess where we spent time in the book of 1 Corinthians as a church a couple years ago. There are a couple of sermons in that series, particularly having to do with chapters 12 and 14 that I think will serve you well and help bring answers to some of those questions. I'm also not going to spend a lot of time looking back on the Old Testament references that show up in this morning's passage and unpacking all of the, the imagery associated with those references. If, if I could simplify it as much as possible, here's, here's my goal. My goal this morning is this. It's up on the screen for simplicity's sake. The, the Spirit of God, my goal this morning is to show that the Spirit of God unifies and empowers the people of God to declare the mighty works of God. And those mighty works are revealed most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The Spirit of God unifies and empowers the people of God to declare the mighty works of God. And those mighty works are revealed most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going this morning. Maybe one day we'll come back, do a series on the book of Acts, look for buried treasure. But this morning, I simply want you to see that we're meant to be a spirit-filled, celebratory, proclaiming people. We're meant to be a rowdy bunch, the church, okay? And, and, And what we are to proclaim is not just anything, but the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we're meant to to celebrate and proclaim with our lips and our lives the story of a God who creates, a God who reveals himself to his creation, a God who rescues, a God who restores, a God who heals, a God who resurrects. That's what we're going after this morning. And so if you're one of those people like me who nerd out on expository preaching, I'm going to go ahead and apologize before we even get going, okay? Stick around for our study of the book of Hebrews a few weeks from now. I promise we will nerd out big time, okay? We will mine those verses for everything they have. We'll go goonies on it, okay? We'll search for buried treasure. With that being said, with goonies being said, let's dive into verse one. Try to get a goonies reference in at least once a year. Verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, Luke says. Going back to chapter one, verse 15, we're talking about roughly 120 of Jesus's followers. They're all together on the day of Pentecost, likely in the upper room, one of those three major feasts on the Israelite calendar. They've been waiting for the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus said in chapter one would come upon them. We talked about that last week. The Spirit who would empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In chapter 1, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit as the power to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And here in Acts chapter 2, just as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism to anoint him for the work of ministry, here the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus' followers so that they can continue the ministry of Jesus. He says, like a mighty rushing wind, tongues as of, like fire. This is Luke's attempt at, at explaining the supernatural within the constraints of human language. That the Holy Spirit puts wind into the sails of the Christ follower. The Holy Spirit brings illumination and warmth into the life and heart of the Christ follower. And this filling and warming is meant to empower the Christian to be a witness for Jesus. Setting aside the the similarities and differences between what happened in Acts chapter 2 and what happens today, that's a sermon in and of itself, okay? We just can't go there this morning. The main thing that I want to bring to our attention in these verses is this. I said it before. The Spirit of God unifies and empowers the people of God to declare the mighty works of God. Okay, that statement is true to this day. Regardless of where you land on the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit of God is still in the business of unifying and empowering God's people to declare God's mighty works. There's no cultural barrier that the Spirit is not powerful enough to overcome. Going back to last week, the Spirit of God is mightier than Bible Belt moralism. The Spirit of God is mightier than the Spirit at work in the suburbs that seeks to smother the Christian spirit. The, The church who fixes her eyes on Jesus and walks in the power of the Spirit of God will put massive dents in the gates of hell. Every time I gather in a community group with people of different backgrounds and upbringings than me, it's amazing to see the Spirit of God unify us and make him much of the Son of God. It's amazing. It's a very small but beautiful picture of what's to come in the new heaven and earth as every tribe, tongue, and nation gathers around the throne to sing praises in unison to King Jesus. Now here's the crazy thing. The same Holy Spirit who showed up in Acts chapter 2 lives in you if you're a Christian. That's crazy, right? Can we all agree that's nuts? The same Holy Spirit that we find in Acts chapter 2 indwells you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. If we truly understand and believe the gospel, we should be the rowdiest people on the planet. If Acts chapter 2 is less than convincing on that point, consider 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That, that we're a people redeemed so that we might proclaim that what you have in these first 11 verses is a collective proclamation of the goodness, glory, and grace of God. 
The Spirit of God unifying and empowering the people of God to declare the mighty works of God. And, and notice the response of the crowd, verses 12 and 13. It says this, and, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. This is what happens when God's people, empowered by God's Spirit, proclaim God's mighty works. Some are amazed, some are confused, some mock. It reminds me very much of what you read in Second uh, Corinthians, Paul's words there, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, of Jesus, everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. That some celebrate the mighty works of God, others suppress the mighty works of God. And here's the deal. If you're a Christian, this is where we're going momentarily. You live in the contested space, and so you battle with both. I'll explain how that works in a moment. But first, notice what Peter does moving forward in, in Acts chapter 2. Here's where it gets really interesting. Here, here's what the rest of this morning's passage is going to make clear. It's that we're not talking about some subjective work of the Spirit of God apart from the objective work of the Son of God. That the Spirit of God empowers Christians to declare with boldness the gospel of the Son of God. Peter goes on to say this in verse 14. Standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. By the way, that's not an apologetic for getting drunk other hours of the day. We can talk about that if you want to go grab coffee. But he goes on to say, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And this is where we get the words of the Old Testament. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The, sh the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter, he, he essentially begins preaching to the crowd. And, and he knows that as a part of the celebration of Pentecost, they would have been reading through the book of Joel. And so he basically tells them that what they're witnessing is the very thing that Joel prophesied would happen. He's declaring that the outpouring of the Spirit of God was the plan of God all along. And he goes on to say that this plan of God not only has to do with the Spirit of God, but also the Son of God. He says this in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I, I love this. Uh, Peter makes crystal clear that this outpouring of the Spirit of God that everyone's witnessing in this moment is inextricably linked to the finished work of the Son of God. Going back to last week, Peter tells of the humanity of Jesus. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man 
the God of the universe, stepping out of eternity into time, conceived by the Holy Spirit, thus fully God, born of the Virgin Mary, thus fully man. Jesus stooped down and entered into the slums of human history. Peter tells of the ministry and miracles of Jesus. He says, the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. The power of God on display in so many miraculous, wondrous ways. Story after story, if you read the gospel accounts of Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. And not just his works, but his words. He claimed to be God in the flesh, the embodiment of truth, the only hope for salvation. Peter tells of the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here you encounter the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Don't ask me to go there this morning. Again, that's another sermon for another day. Jesus died a shameful criminal's death in the place of sinners. The death we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him, Peter says, and he was punished in our place. Peter tells of the resurrection of Jesus. God raised him up, he says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That Jesus burst forth from the grave in triumph, declaring victory over the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. That he's alive. We don't just declare that on Easter Sunday. We declare that every day as Christians. He's alive. The the risen, death-conquering, sin-conquering, Satan-conquering King Jesus is the reason why any of us in this room have any hope of celebrating this morning. Peter goes on to make his case that Jesus is indeed alive by again going to the Old Testament. He shows the crowd how Jesus is the promised one of Psalm 16. If you were around for our summer in the Psalms, you saw over and over again how the Psalms point to Jesus. This is just another example. In verse 25, it says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David here in this psalm speaks of an incorruptible body, a conquering of the grave. And Peter goes on to explain it. He says this in verse 29. He says, brothers... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. He saw corruption, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his, one of David's descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Okay, Old Testament David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And now Peter's going to take it a step further from the resurrection to the ascension of Jesus. Verse 33, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain, this is Peter speaking, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is the confession of the church. 
Coming back to what I said earlier, the Spirit of God empowers and unifies the people of God to declare the mighty works of God, and those mighty works are revealed most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. The the person and work of Jesus is our confession. The person and work of Jesus is the reason we have any hope of living lives of celebration. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. We have every reason to be the most celebratory people on the planet, a rowdy bunch, as I've said before. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, think about it this way. We've gone from, if you're a Christian, we've gone from spiritual orphans diving in the dumpsters of depravity to being rescued into a family as beloved sons and daughters of God. That's unreal. That's amazing. We're part of a, a divine drama that involves a God who not only creates but makes himself known to his creation. A God who willingly became a character in the very story that he's authoring in order to rescue the very ones that rebelled against him. We're talking about a God who heals, a God who resurrects, a God who cares, a God who believes in happily ever afters. Isn't that good news? That's the gospel story that you and I are invited in to celebrate. Now here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to attempt to explain how you put tracks on the ground to that, that rhythm of celebration I want to come back around to this, this strategy for gospel transformation that, that I shared with you last week, attempted to unpack, didn't do it justice. Let me make, make another pass at it and, and then show you how this rhythm of celebration that we're talking about is infused in this strategy. Okay, so, so you look up on the screen. This is how we as a church are looking, looking to put tracks on the ground in order to experience the centrality of the gospel most surely in our lives. Um, As you can see, by looking on that screen, we're not looking to be the over-programmed church. We're looking to do a few things well that will set you up um, for the fanning into flame of these gospel rhythms, so to speak. And so we'd really love for you to move into three environments. One, our Sunday gatherings. You're here. I probably don't need to convince you to be here because you're sitting in a seat right now. You, You probably know that unique to this environment is the preaching of God's word, the administering of the sacraments. It's here that we take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. It's here in this environment that we celebrate baptisms. It's here in this environment that we come together as the full family of God, as this expression of Jesus' bride to, to collectively sing to him as our triumphant, exalted King and Savior. It's here that we give of our tithes and offerings as an act of worship. It's here that we seek to point kids to Jesus in a very strategic, intentional way. But we can't accomplish everything in this environment. We we can't dialogue in this environment. It would be socially awkward for us to have a dialogue right now, right? You all know that, and so that's not how the church works when we gather on Sundays. And so we want to infuse you into living rooms throughout this community so that so that you can dialogue about how the scriptures, wherever we are in the Bible, inform our lives in light of the gospel. And so as we come together in living rooms throughout this community every week for a couple of hours, particular night of the week, we we're We're seeking to take the the reality of the gospel and bring it to bear in light of who we are, um, what what our challenges with sin and unbelief look like, the history that we bring to the table, our upbringing, the attacks of the enemy that are unique and form-fitted to us, um, even the circumstances that we're going through in life, and to come together and rally around one another to point one another to Jesus in a very intentional way. Um, Community groups are also the... 
the context in which you most readily experience, I would argue, this word picture of the church as a family. Because you're, you're just small enough that, that you can engage in relational connectivity and conversations with one another, but you're just big enough that it feels a little bit like sitting at the Thanksgiving table. So you have, you have the rowdy kids, you have those who are in various places in their journey with Jesus, you have wise sages, you have the crazy uncle who doesn't raise their kids the way you'd raise your kids or take the conversation where you'd go in a community group dialogue, and they're there for your sanctification. And by the way, you might be the crazy uncle. I'm pretty sure that I'm the crazy uncle of my group, okay? God uses that context to sanctify us, to shape us. It's very easy to come here and never be known and then to get so small in a one-on-one context that you just surround yourself with people that are just like you. And you never experience that, that chiseling, that, that sanctifying work of diversity coming together in a space in the name of the gospel. Jesus Christ might be the only thing that unifies, the only one who unifies people in a community group context at times. But then... We also want to get even smaller into what we're calling gospel alliances where we go after things that just aren't being accomplished in the other two environments. That there's a reality that when you gather 12 people, even in a living room, in a community group context, week in and week out, and you've got a couple of hours to converse, you're only going to get so far with any person's story. There are things that are never going to be unearthed. There are things that are never going to be shared because there, there's an unwillingness to, to go after that next layer in, as it pertains to transparency. There are gender issues that we're just not going to share maybe in mixed company. And so we want people to pursue relationships with others that are even more form-fitted, more intentional with gospel intentionality. That would be the simple way to say it. And so those relationships, those gospel alliance relationships are intended to serve one of two purposes, either to help equip us to live out the implications of the gospel in our lives or to actually help us to fight, equip and fight, sharpen the sword, wield the sword alongside one another in very intentional ways. I didn't mention this last week, but I'll mention it this morning. There is no sign-up sheet for a gospel alliance, by the way. Like the, those, those come by intertwining our lives with other people in the church and, and asking the Spirit of God in His providence to guide us toward others for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of our own souls. If you want to know how to, how to make all that come together, let's hang out. We can chat about that. But let me do this. Let me, let, let me bring this strategy to bear in light of this rhythm of celebration that we're talking about this morning and show you how that rhythm is infused in each of these environments. I'll just give you my own example from this past week, okay? Sunday gatherings. Last Sunday, we celebrated as a family the God who rescues sinners. We celebrated the God who invites us to be a, a part of a mission that cannot and will not fail. We celebrated the God whose spirit is mightier than Bible Belt moralism. We celebrated the God whose spirit is mightier than the spirit at work in the suburbs. We celebrated the God who loves to use ordinary people like you and me to put massive dents in the gates of hell. We celebrated through two baptisms the God who crucifies our old self and raises us to walk in newness of life. All that happened here. But now let me take you into my community group. This past Wednesday, I got to celebrate the God who frees people from anxiety and root idols of control and approval. I got to celebrate the God who, because he's a sufficient savior, frees people from having to live with the unbearable weight of a savior complex. None of that likely would have happened here on a Sunday morning. It took several hours of conversation to even unearth those things. And thus, my, my community group acted as a, a, an additional layer of celebration in my life this past week by God's grace. Man, I love my community group. 
And then, as it pertains to gospel alliances, this past week, in very form-fitted, intentional, one-on-one conversations, I got to celebrate the God whose gospel leads not to pride or despair, but to confident humility. I got to celebrate the God who rescues people from legalism and at the same time gives them hearts that love his commands. Things that didn't come up this past Sunday or in my community group. Things that likely were only going to be shared in that third relational space. And so this week I got to breathe some celebratory air with my brothers and sisters in Christ on all levels. And God used all of it for his glory and my good. Let me say this. This past week I found myself incredibly happy that we are not the overprogrammed church. Because I need room. I need space for all this to catch fire. And it did this past week by God's grace. And so as we move toward wrapping up, let let me do this. I want to come back to to this idea of the contested space. And and I want to address those competing voices that call out to us in the contested space for just a moment. Those Those voices that invite us into what they declare to be a life of celebration, but what's really a life of suppression. And, and, and so here's where I want to attempt to expose those competing voices for what they are. I said I was going to attempt to do that last week. Here, here we go. None of these voices is, is declaring the same story that Acts chapter 2 is declaring. Okay, first there's, there's the voice of moralism. Again, I mentioned this before, that the, the gospel story is very different from a story in, in which the God who created all of this is waiting for us to perform in order to earn his love. That's a very different story than Acts chapter 2, the God who would enter in and die on behalf of sinners like you and me. But if we're honest, don't we buy into this anti-gospel story at times? That God loves the good guys, so we've got some clawing to do. And here's the problem. Within the story of moralism, celebration, that rhythm of celebration, can only happen in moments of self-wrought righteousness. As long as you're checking all of your boxes, you have something to celebrate. And it's usually yourself, not God. Right? We've all met those people, have we not? They read their Bible for 30 days straight, and all of a sudden they're the expert on Bible reading, and they want to infuse their plan into your life from a place of arrogance. If you haven't met those people, you, you haven't lived here very long. Um, this performance-based mentality as it pertains to God's love and favor, it can only lead to one of two places, pride when you think you're doing it, despair when you believe you're failing at it. The beauty of the gospel is this. The gospel doesn't lead to pride or despair, but rather to confident humility. Confidence because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing to add to the work of Jesus. It's finished, he said. So we're confident because Jesus paid it all, and we're humbled because Jesus paid it all. Not us. There's something to celebrate in the gospel story that that the story of moralism cannot offer us. There's another storyline, the storyline of deism. Deism declares that God wound up the clock of human history in the beginning and checked out on his creation uninvolved and just leaves us to our own devices. Now you might go, confessionally, I don't believe that to be true. I'm a Christian. But if we can be honest for a second, Do we not at times live as functional deists, living as though God's uninvolved and so I can just be my own God? I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to take into account this God who sits sovereignly over all things. And so within the story of functional deism, celebration can only happen as long as we feel enthroned. As long as no one threatens our kingdom because 
we're the sovereigns of those kingdoms after all, then everything's good. But the moment our kingdom experiences any kind of threat, we can throw celebration out the window. Some of you know what it's like to live that way. You try to build something in, in, in your own name. You try to build something for your own glory and it crumbles and you're devastated at the end of the day. The gospel invites us into something so very different. The gospel declares that Jesus is a good king who invites us to join in the building of his good kingdom and it will never crumble. There's something to celebrate in the gospel that functional deism cannot offer us. And then there's the, the story of atheism. That there is no God. That we've all evolved from primordial sludge into the glory of man. And you go, man, I'm, I'm hostile toward atheism. I'm not an atheist. Are you crazy? I'm here in a church service right now. But I would argue that a lot of... Uh, a lot of people who profess to be Christians in the Bible Belt are walking around as functional atheists, living their lives as if there really is no God. There is no relationship with this God. And thus it becomes eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's all about the moment. It's all about living for the next uh, endorphin-releasing thing, clawing our way after, after the next opportunity to experience some fleeting moment of happiness. And so within the story of functional atheism, celebration can only happen as long as you experience that fleeting moment of happiness. As we claw our way after one thing after another, hoping that this next thing will last a little bit longer than the, the thing before it. But the gospel invites us into something different, something significant, something eternal. A story that's moving toward the most glorious, uninterrupted, happily ever after the world's ever known. And everything leading up to that final chapter, the present tense, is for the sake of God's glory and our joy too. There's something to celebrate in the gospel that functional atheism can't offer you. One of the most terrifying things that the church has done in recent history is to convince people of a gospel that converts you and sets you up for the afterlife and calls you to live as if there is no God for the next 40, 50 years till you meet him. That's a lie from the devil of hell that is an anti-gospel, and it, and it sets us up for celebrations that can't carry us. And then lastly, there, there's this competing story of polytheism, poly meaning many, the worship of many gods. You might go, I, I didn't bring the worship of many gods into this building this morning. I, I worship the, the God of Christianity. What are you talking about? I'm not, I don't go home and, and bow to the God of Islam. Like I, that's not me. But is it not true that functional polytheism exists in our culture? Is it not true that, that we find ourselves at times declaring, work is my God, my kids are my God, money is my God, and God is my God? Within the story of functional polytheism, celebration can only happen as long as none of your gods disappoint. But should even just one of them, even one of them, fall from its pedestal, it's absolute devastation. The gospel invites us, hear me, this, is, this might be the biggest one in a suburban context. The gospel invites us to worship the one true God, Jesus Christ, who will never fall from his pedestal. He will never leave us nor forsake us, unlike all those other good things that we fashion into God things. There's something to celebrate in the gospel that functional polytheism cannot offer us. The Bible Belt suburbs, hear me, think of those four words on the screen. The Bible Belt suburbs are filled with people clawing after God's approval. The Bible Belt suburbs are filled with people seeking to build their own kingdoms. 
The Bible Belt suburbs are filled with people seeking to live for the next fleeting moment of happiness. The Bible Belt suburbs are filled with people turning good things into objects of worship. And just to be crystal clear, I'm one of those people. I desperately need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ all the time. Every one of those competing worldviews is directly opposed to us experiencing a true life of celebration N.T. Wright says this about Acts chapter 2. He says in his commentary, Some Christians have been so concerned to keep up safe appearances and to make sure they are looking like ordinary, normal people that they would never under any circumstances have been accused of being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning or any other time. Part of the challenge of this passage is the question, have our churches today got enough energy, enough spirit-driven new life to make onlookers pass any comment at all? Has anything happened which might make people think we are drunk? If not, is it because the Spirit is simply at work in other ways or because we are so successfully quenched the Spirit that there is actually nothing happening at all? The the Spirit of suburbia is happy to quench the Spirit of God. The Spirit of moralism is happy to quench the Spirit of God. How, How incredible would it be to see us say no more and more to those competing voices? To say no to the voice calling us to claw after God's approval and love and to say yes to the approval that's ours in Christ. To say no to the the voice calling us to visions of self-glory and kingdom building and to say yes to a life lived making much of the glorious name of Jesus Christ in the building of his kingdom. To say no to the voice calling us to our next fleeting moment of endorphin-releasing happiness absent of God and to say yes to the eternal joy that's ours in Jesus Christ. To say no to the voice calling us to make our spouses and kids and careers the center of our lives. And to say yes to Christ the center who informs the way we love all of those other good things. How incredible. How incredible would it be for us to be a church that celebrates the goodness, glory, and grace of God in such a way that onlookers, people enslaved to moralism and suburbanism, can't help but stop and stare like the people stared at the disciples in Acts chapter 2. And it begins with us stopping and staring into the face of Jesus Christ. You and I, we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but we're so loved that he was glad to do it. And so may we never stop soaking in or celebrating that beautiful gospel truth that this is the God who rescues and we are his beloved. In a moment, we're gonna receive communion here. We're gonna take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. This morning, as you come forward, if I could put a bow on this, this is my hope for you. As you take the bread, dip it in the cup, you sit with that bread in hand, and you reflect on all of this, my hope would be this, that it would be a moment of celebration for you, that you would stop and celebrate the fact that you don't live in a story that involves a God who expects you to perform in order to earn his love. That you don't live in a story with a God who wound up the clock of human history and checked out on you uninvolved in your life. That you're not a part of a story uh, in which you've evolved from primordial sludge into the glory of what you are. That that, that it's all irrational, that nothing matters, but rather that you're part of a story that's being weaved together as a beautiful tapestry. 
with God as its author. That you don't live in a story in which there are competing gods and you don't know which one's the true sovereign and which one's really good. And so you don't know how it's going to turn out in the end. Rather, you live in a story with a God who creates a God who reveals himself to his creation, a God who would stoop down and become a character in his own story in order to redeem rebellious people who have sinned against him, a God who cares, a God who heals, a God who resurrects, a God who restores. That's the story that you get to be a part of, a story that has a beautiful happily ever after waiting on you when Jesus returns to set all things right. So when we take the bread and dip it in the cup this morning, may we not do that somberly. We have something to celebrate as a church this morning.